Introduction The family in America is under siege. I know it. You know it. We all feel the truth of the words of a social scientist, quote, People are scared, they see relationships collapsing all around them, and they worry about whether theirs will last, but they don't know what to do about it. End quote. But when I say the family is under siege, I mean an all-out war is being waged against it. The statistics in so many areas that touch the family are alarming. The divorce rate has more than doubled since 1971. A staggering 1.2 million divorces in 1985 affected 1.8 million children. Single-parent families are growing at 20 times the rate of two-parent families. More frightening is the expanding number of one-parent families with children who live with a mother who has never been married. Since 1970, there has been a fourfold increase, 2.8 million, in the children being reared by a mother who has never been married. Attack from outside Do you know where the attack is coming from? Rarely do students of human behaviour agree on anything, but an article in the August 1974 issue of Scientific American, The Origins of Alienation, said there are two generalisations being agreed upon about research on our society. 1. Social disorder in our culture results from complete family disorganisation and 2. Much of the same research also shows that the forces of disorganisation arise primarily not from within the family but from the circumstances in which the family finds itself and from the way of life that is imposed on it by those circumstances. Exactly. I know of so many parents who are trying to raise a family, but they feel like they're swimming upstream. It seems like everything, and almost everyone in our society, is against the family, the very thing most dear to them. There may be those who pretend to defend the family, but time after time we find that their solutions are just as much a part of the problem as the solutions recommended by someone who comes right out and attacks the family. It's like an interview in the March 15th, 1979 issue of the Dallas Morning News with Betty Friedan, founder of the National Organization for Women and with the, quote, mother of woman's lib, unquote, Muriel Fox. They seem to care about the family, admitting that it is in a, quote, hopeless state of collapse. Their proposal... Innovative and practical solutions. What do they mean? Their definition of the family says it all. Quote, family is people who are living together with deep commitment and with mutual needs and sharing. End quote. Get the point. A family is anybody, even lesbians and homosexuals, living together with deep commitment. It doesn't make any difference whether a family is built on a heterosexual relationship what really counts is the commitment, even if it is perverted. So, just because people say they are, quote, for the family, end quote, doesn't necessarily mean anything. They may be, and probably are, part of the unloyal opposition against the traditional household. But let's get specific. Who, or what, are these forces of disorganisation waging war? Who's the real enemy out there? Public enemy number one. 
Perhaps you've heard the slogan, with friends like you, who needs enemies? I can't list all the enemies of the family, but I can isolate public enemy number one. Today's civil government. That's right. Over the last 50 years, the social and economic policies of the civil government, as well as its legislation against the family, have dealt one death blow after another. It's not supposed to be this way. God created the civil government to protect the society of which family is such an important part. But it's just not this way right now in our society. In fact, every time the government says it's going to do something to help the family, watch out. Remember the Carter administration? In 1979, President Carter decided to try to help the family. Since it was being strained to the breaking point by social and economic forces, beyond its control. His aid was in the form of the creation of the Office for Families, part of the Department of Health, Education and Welfare, HEW. One author said this was, quote, kind of like putting goats in charge of the cabbage patch. First on the list of things to do were three conferences, beginning in 1981, to determine whether government, private enterprise and business were helping or hurting the family. How well I remember the Baltimore session of the White House Conference on the Family. One delegate immediately asked the conference to define the family as, quote, two or more persons who share resources, responsibility for decisions, values and goals, and have commitment to one another over time, end quote. Sounds familiar to what Ms. Friedan and Fox tried to do. The really horrifying scene was that the action lost only by two votes out of 761 delegates, The whole conference went on this way, providing a forum for liberals to redefine the family. It would have gone the same way in Virginia's session, except that a dedicated pro-family lady named Joanne Gasper saw what was coming and organised a counter-move at the last minute. The Virginian convention was well attended by pro-family women who didn't pass anti-family resolutions. But if she hadn't been alerted to the potential misuse of this forum by anti-family forces, it would have been a disaster. As the organiser of the anti-family delegates later admitted to her, quote, You wiped out a year of my life, end quote. Mrs. Gasper later was appointed by the Reagan administration to a high-level position in the Department of Health and Human Services. So, the good friend of the family, Jimmy Carter, tried to take governmental action to support the modern household. But it turned out to be disastrous. Every time the civil government tries to form social and economic programmes to help, these very programmes create what they are supposedly trying to remove. Why, Why should this be? The answer is simple. The state buys problems. Failure of government programmes Years ago, local governments would set up money bounties for troublesome rodents or animals that the public wanted to eliminate. It would pay money if someone would bring in a proof of having exterminated a pest, such as a rat's tail or a pair of ears from a coyote. Guess what happened? If the bounties were high enough to affect people's plans, eventually some enterprising people would start breeding rats or coyotes for a living. They would take in piles of tails or ears and collect their reward. After all, it's a lot easier to breed rats in a shed or barn than catch them. 
The result of the bounties was the opposite of what was officially intended. The community would wind up with more of the unwanted pests than before the programme began. Paying people not to be self-reliant. This is exactly what happens when the civil government tries to create welfare programmes. Like the rat's tail bounty, welfare programmes actually create what they are trying to remove. The costs of the programme go higher and higher. When the government pays money to people who are unable to support themselves, it creates an incentive to become non-supporting. People who were just getting by, barely self-reliant people, now see an opportunity. They can register as officially non-self-reliant people and collect easy money. It pays them marginally productive to go over the line into official poverty. It pulls them out of the free market, where there is always at least the hope of increasing one's responsibility and income, and into the welfare world, where there is very little hope of escaping the cycle of poverty. Charles Murray's whole point in his detailed book, Losing Ground, 1984, is that the, quote, welfare and poverty, unquote, programmes of the early 1960s have increased poverty, crime and welfare among minorities. Quite a startling statement from a man who is a political liberal in many of his views. We might say that the free market responds to monetary demand, no matter what the demand is for. If there is a new government demand for poverty victims, then the market will respond and produce such victims in greater abundance than before the programme was begun. The family. When it comes to the family, there's no difference. We see the same process. The government's economic policies have antagonised the family. The government has become family enemy number one. Notice in the chart below that the years from 1960 to 1980 produced extremely high rates of illegitimate births. In 1960, approximately 224,000 children were born to single mothers, but in 1980, the number jumped to 665,747. Why? Murray points out that it was during this same period of history that all the schemes of the Great Society appeared. The more the government pumped into welfare, the more illegitimacy rose. It's simple. The government can't legislate social welfare. Pick an area, any area, and you'll discover that government involvement in social issues has become disastrous. The statistics on illegitimacy are obvious. Are there any others? Adoption problems created by the government. Today, in the United States, about 1.5 million infants are killed each year in the womb. The worldwide total has been estimated by government agencies to be as high as 35 million a year. Today, it also is difficult to adopt. It's not that many people don't want to adopt children, but there are numerous adoption barriers, most of which are created by the government, and they feed back into the abortion problem. How so? The government places price ceilings on adoption fees and maternity care expenses that are so low that they don't actually cover expenses. Supposedly, the government wants to prevent baby buying and set ceilings, for example, in the District of Columbia at $2,500. This means that the adoption agency cannot pay for the maternity home care. 
This closes off a potential solution for the pregnant girl. She often finds it easier and less expensive to have her own child destroyed in an abortion chamber, abortion clinic. Here is a classic example where a free market approach to unwanted pregnancies would pay mothers to carry their children full term and allow them to be adopted. Let's get our terminology clear. The Bible is clear. Kidnapping carries the death penalty. Exodus chapter 20 verse 16. The Bible teaches that a society that honours God must inflict the highest possible penalty on kidnapping in order to discourage the practice. Because of this ever-present threat, it is legitimate for civil government to require adoption agencies to keep careful records about the source of supply for any child and to limit legal adoptions to transactions with these conforming agencies. Second, the Bible is clear that promiscuity is evil. It should be restricted by government, but not civil government. It should be restricted by church and family governments. The church has a legitimate concern for morality among its members. If the parents fail to discipline their children, then the church should get involved in some sort of discipline. Matthew chapter 18 verses 15 to 18. But family government is supposed to be the main parameter for promiscuity. The head of the household of the daughter who becomes pregnant is to decide whether to compel the marriage between the sinning daughter and her sinning male consort. If the parent decides against the marriage, he or she can demand that the male or his family pay a sufficient amount of money to pay for the birth of the baby. Not its execution, but its birth. The civil government does not have any independent authority in this regard. It simply supports the decision of the legally sovereign parent. Deuteronomy chapter 22, verses 28 and 29. Finally, if the unmarried daughter decides to have an adopting family pay for the expenses, she can keep the money paid by her consort, what in some societies might be called a dowry. It gives her some protective capital before she enters a marriage, something that is hers that she takes into the marriage. By the way, American fathers of the bride pay for expensive weddings and guests bring lots of gifts. If this isn't a dowry, it's only because the gifts wear out. In dowry societies, the father gives the bride silver or other assets, and this is her property for life. Protection in case she is divorced by her husband. Any attempt to label such an adoption fee transaction, a free market, baby for sale operation, misses the point. The idea is, first, to place financial incentives on saving the life of the child through adoption expenses. And second, to reduce the incentive for illicit fornication through parental authority over the unmarried couple. But civil government interferes with the first and will not back up the second, and it therefore becomes a main opponent of the family. In fact, the National Adoption Exchange complains that in some areas of the country, relatives are not allowed to adopt a child because of a rigid age 40 limit. This anti-adoption policy indirectly subsidises the abortion clinics. The government needs to get out of the subsidy business. Indeed, in almost every case, low-income homes with loving parents would be much better than a tax-subsidised, lower-qualified 
government-approved foster home. Government on divorce. In 1981, Nye and MacDonald did a study where they asked the major leadership groups, quote, Should divorce in this country be easier or more difficult to obtain than it is now? End quote. The results are described below. Take a look at the two groups that had the weakest response in the more difficult category. Government and law and justice. This means we have a tremendous value gap between the populace and the government. This means the government is pro-family as it approaches election day, but pro-divorce any other time. This means the government is privately and publicly at war with the family. This reminds me of an astounding case I heard about. Although it didn't take place in America, it certainly represented the same kind of practice in this country. In May the 20th, 1978, it was reported that a divorce was granted to the wife of a man who whistled and sang. Quote, Mr. Walter Judge, aged 67, carried his habit of whistling and singing to such extremes that his wife found it intolerable. Mrs. Judge was granted a divorce because the marriage had broken down due to her husband's unreasonable behaviour. The family is under siege. It is being attacked from all sides. The greatest enemy is the government itself. What are we to do? Is there an answer? Yes. A biblical blueprint for the family. It seems like everything else has been tried. How about the Bible? Our nation used to believe that it was the yardstick by which everything, including the family, was measured. How many people still believe this? Don't be surprised. More and more people perceive we've gotten away from our biblical foundation, but they don't know what to do. Here's where we come to the concern of this book. No one in his right mind would think of building a house without some sort of blueprint to follow. Yet, Millions of Americans are trying to build their families without consulting God's blueprint, the Bible. Doesn't it make sense that we could be successful if we did it God's way? So, before we can defend ourselves against the enemies of the family, and particularly the economic and legal policies of the civil government, we need to listen to God. I think we need to ask a very fundamental question. Who owns the family? I've discovered that a lot of people don't realise that this is the heart of all the problems concerning the family. If you don't own something, you don't control it. This seems so obvious, doesn't it? But how many times have you discovered the source of a problem was that you just didn't consider the obvious? It's quite obvious that the civil government knows that this is the major question to be answered. How do I know? Take a look at all the legislation coming out of the judicial branch of the government. Remember, this is the law and justice group that we saw was so weak on the divorce question. If you don't believe me, then you need to read this book. Even if you do believe me, I'll bet you don't know the 10 cases that changed American family life. You need to examine the contents of the following pages. Who Owns the Family is organised into two sections, Principles and Practical Application. In the Principles section, I present 10 principles in answer to the question, Who Owns the Family? 
Each question centers around a major court case that violates or supports one of the ten principles. Since most of the recent court cases concerning the family have attacked it, the majority of the examples I use are negative. In my opinion, there are ten court cases that have established precedents that either have altered or could alter our family's lives. The point is, I'm not making up these concerns. These concerns are a matter of law. In the practical application section, I want specifically to tell you how each of the spheres of society, family, church and state, can put ownership back into the rightful hands. When we finish, we will know who owns the family, what this means, and how to put the family back on course in our society. But first, we should understand who owns the family. Does the state? Does the church? How about the parents? Do they own the family? Let's take a look at the first chapter to find out.